Well, good morning. Can I tell you guys some really, really, really good news? Seriously? You just heard that and you don't want, you don't, you don't, oh, I got it. You're all worn out from hearing all the good news already, so you don't, you don't want any more. Well, you better get ready because it's, Easter's coming. But today, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And honestly, that's, that's my whole message today. And after Candace, after you spoke and Dewey and your wife spoke, I feel like I don't need to preach, but don't get any ideas because I'm not built like that. Uh, but uh, I'm excited to be here with you today and thankful for the opportunity. If you have your Bibles, why don't you get them out? Turn to Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight, and we'll be there most of our morning today. Last week, we launched into a, a new series called Unshaken, which is all about standing firm even when things all around us seem to be falling apart or spinning out of control. And we, we started by answering the question, what does unshakable confidence actually look like? We started kind of at the end of chapter eight, which I know is a little weird, but we got to the point where Paul got to in verses 31 through 39, we found that unshakable confidence comes as we're fully convinced of God's love for us and his work in us. God is at work in us and he is for us. And today we're gonna be answering the question of how do we get there? How do we get to that unshakable confidence? We know what it is, we know what it looks like. We've heard it proclaimed through Paul, through the other writers of scripture, but how do we get there? Because in Paul we see this pretty dramatic shift take place from chapter seven through the end of chapter eight. And what makes this change is his rehearsal of truth that we find throughout the chapter. And last week we looked at one of these core truths and we have another one for you today in verses one through 17 of chapter eight. And here's what it is for today. To stand unshaken, we must embrace the freedom we have in Christ Jesus through the spirit. We must embrace the freedom we have in Christ. And uh, most people in our country, for good reason, place a, a high priority on freedom. Wouldn't you agree? And the First Amendment is really just the beginning. This is what it says. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for the redress of agreements. And to that we say amen, right? All right, First Amendment, that's just getting started. But the problem is sometimes we love talking about that kind of freedom. In fact, we're enjoying some of that freedom as we speak. But we can, we can be tempted to Americanize scripture when we talk about freedom, right? Because we're, this is the land of the free and the home of the brave. And we, we, we're thankful for those things and we're thankful to God for those things. But when we talk about freedom, especially in chapter eight, it means something far greater than that. We aren't talking about freedom from a tyrannical king on the other side of the ocean or the freedom to own firearms or even the freedom to worship freely on a Sunday morning. Although those are all great things. We're talking about a far greater freedom, and that's freedom from sin, from its penalty, from its power, and eventually from its presence in our lives. And if we know in Christ that we are free from the penalty of sin, we can live without the shame of sin in our lives. 
And if we know in Christ we are free from its power, we can live in victory over sin. And if we know in Christ that one day we will live with him and without sin's presence, then we can live with unshaken hope for the future. And that's what we're all after for this series is we want that unshaken confidence, that unshaken hope that one day Christ will return and we will be with him forever. That's the freedom that we're talking about. And to help us understand just how life-changing this freedom really is, Paul presents it to us on the backdrop of his own struggle of self-righteousness. His struggle with self-righteousness. We looked at this section briefly last week, but I, I want to peek at it again because it helps us understand better the freedom that we're, we're after and those of us who are in Christ Jesus, the freedom that we actually, we actually have. So flip back with me to Romans 7. I know I had you in Romans 8, but we're just gonna look at a few verses in Romans 7. Verse 15 says this, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So I find it to be a law that, that when I do want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And we look at this passage, there's actually some debate as to whether Paul is talking about his pre-conversion self or he's actually talking about himself right there in the moment, a man who is saved, who believes in Jesus Christ and has accepted the free gift of salvation, but struggles on his own to work out his own salvation. I believe that Paul is speaking about himself with his struggle as a Christian trying to please God on his own strength. And we've all been there, right? We all try to please God on our own. We, we think we have it figured out. We think we, we can make this work. We struggle with sin. We still desire to do things on our own, right? I, I know as, as a man especially, I know as an American especially, we have this desire for autonomy. I don't want anyone to help me or to tell me what I'm supposed to do. And we struggle with that internally as Christians. And we submit ourselves as captives to the law of sin, as Paul states in verse 23. And I actually found a, a video of an exact representation of what this means, if you guys want to watch. Well, if he's not going to make it, at least we should go ahead and eat the cake. Yeah. I, for one, love the corners. <laughs> Why did I just do that? It's not even that good. I don't even look, I don't even want it. I had cake for lunch. No, you know what? I've been good. I deserve this. Oh, oh God. God. What am I doing? Come on, Angelo. You ever been there? Um, I, my, I, cake, cake holds no sway over me, but those white chocolate Reese's eggs, 
that are out and about right now to, at Target, oh, the struggle with, with sin is, I know that's a humorous example, but it's a lot like that. We know what we're supposed to do. We even want to do the right thing, but there's this battle inside of us, and, and Paul calls it that we're captives to the law of sin, and it's this knowledge of that experience of that struggle that makes the truth so sweet. It's the reason that the freedom we have in Christ is such good news is because we've experienced the struggle of dealing with sin. And it's not just good news for unbelievers, but for believers as well. And Paul declares this, fr this freedom again in verse one, the freedom in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we typically understand condemnation to mean punishment. And therefore, in Christ, the punishment for, for sin has been dealt with, and it has. And that is part of the puzzle, but it's only half of the story. Condemnation also carries this idea of imprisonment with hard labor. So not only are, are you uh, you're, you're sentenced to death, but you've been imprisoned, and you've been sentenced to imprisonment with hard labor. That's what that condemnation means. So then... No condemnation does mean that the punishment for your sin has been taken, but it also means that you're no longer sin's slave. It has no power over you if you are in Christ Jesus. You and I as believers have the power to say no to sin. You know how big of a deal that is? And I love that Paul, writing in another spot in Colossians 2, says this. says, in you believer, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And I want to show this to you visually, okay? So I'm gonna need some help. You guys getting nervous? Okay, by the way, there's some, I, I was talking to some people in our office. You guys know what dot matrix paper is? Okay, all right. People don't know what that is anymore. But this is what it is. So in Colossians, uh, Paul says that each one of us has a, has a record of debt standing against us. So there's, there's a list of the things that you and I have done, okay? There's a record of debt that has to be paid. So, um, Luke, you wanna help me out? Luke, how old are you? You can stay right there. How old are you? 13. How long do you think your record of debt is? Don't rip now, come on. Oh, it ripped, all right. You think it's this, this long? Maybe. All right? It's pretty long. I'll be honest, mine would stretch back there, but I only have a thousand sheets of paper. Who else we got? Who else has got a, a record of debt? No one wants to admit it. Jeff, I know you got some, okay? <laughs> right? So here we go. Here's yours. Do we need to keep going? Keep going, keep going. How, how far do we need to keep going? All right? Here's the thing. We all have this record of debt, right? 
And if we're really honest, we wouldn't want to communicate with people how long our list really is. And that's, that's just from like the last day or the last week or the last month. But the truth is that Christ has taken that debt. He's written paid in full on it. It's done. Jeff, it doesn't stand against you anymore. But beyond that, He's taken it, and you can let go of your end, okay? Because I gotta, I gotta take it. All right. Oh well, yours just got a lot shorter, Jeff. And he not only has paid in full, but he also nailed that record of debt to the cross, and you don't bear it anymore, Luke. You don't bear the record of debt set against you anymore because Christ took it upon Himself. And when evil rulers nailed it to the cross. What they didn't know is that they were nailing your sin there and it stands against you no more. And what Paul says in Colossians is that by doing that, he disarms the rulers and authorities and puts them to open shame. If they're put to open shame, you have no shame. Do you understand that? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The record of debt that had to be paid has been paid if you were in Christ Jesus. And I can't wait to celebrate that truth on Friday with you all at our, at our Good Friday service. There is no condemnation. We're free. Free from the power of sin. Free from the penalty of sin. And one day, by God's grace, we'll be free from the presence of sin in our lives and Paul goes on to show us this freedom becomes ours by teaching us by, about the liberating work of the Spirit. And so far, we've heard very little about the liberating work of the Spirit, or even the Spirit in general in the book of Romans. But he comes on the scene here in Romans 8 in a, in a major, major way. Of the 24 times the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the book of Romans, 20 of them take place in chapter 8. And so by that, we, we know that this means the Spirit plays a major role in the confidence we have in our faith. Let's read about it, his work together in verse 2 of chapter 8. He says this, For by the law of the Spirit of life, he has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He was condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And we see here that the Holy Spirit is actually the one who does the act of freeing. He's the one who sets us free. And Paul reveals one of the most magnificent titles that the Holy Spirit holds. He calls him the spirit of life. And Kent Hughes, a commentator uh, on Romans, says this. It reminds us of the first mention of the spirit in the Bible. When the spirit brought forth creation, ex nihilo, or out of nothing, that same creative power is characteristic of this new principle. The spirit of God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. The Spirit of God has set you free. 
That same spirit that was, that was active in creation, that brought life to this planet, that same planet makes you alive and gives you new life when he sets us free. And Paul here, he uses law to, in reference to the Mosaic law, uh, the law that the Jews had to keep in order to keep their covenant relationship with God. God sent a, a set of rules before them and said, if you're going to be my people, you have to follow this law. And it was a good law. And Paul here is not lessening the fact that, in fact, it was, it was perfect and it completed its task by revealing sin and, and pointing out that we need a greater redeemer because even though the law was perfect because it was God's law, it could not create in us a desire to do what is right. It could not create new life in us. It could not give us the desire to obey because only the Holy Spirit working through the blood of Jesus could do that. And I think uh, as a father, I've seen this played out pretty clearly in the lives of my children, right? Uh, good fathers, always, they have rules for their kids, right? Uh-oh. Right? Okay, thank you. Whew. Thought I'd been doing it wrong for 10 years. And, but I can give them rules, right? And teach them how to behave as citizens of the United States and citizens of this world and teach them how, what, what a, you know, a well-behaved person acts like. But those rules can't change their heart, right? So we have a rule, summer's coming up, and uh, I love summer because I can send my kids outside to ride their bikes, to run around, to go build tree forts, to go build whatever they want. And they love to play outside, but we have a rule that if you don't put away your toys at the end of the day, dad comes after dark and throws them into the tree. That's a rule in our house. And so every once in a while, my kids will We'll leave a bike outside or we'll leave some things outside and I throw them up into the tree for them to find the next morning. Okay, I'm not getting rid of the bike, but I have a rule. You gotta take care of your stuff. And then they have the pain of figuring out how do I get my bike out of the tree so I can ride it. You know how many times I've done that? Like 10. Because even though we have the rule, that rule itself does not give them the ability to obey it. And the same thing is true about the law that God gave. It was perfect. It was a good law. And it told, it showed us our sin, but it could not do what the Holy Spirit can do. It could not create new life. It could not show them how to live in obedience. The weakness is not the rules or the law. The weakness is our flesh and in our ability to obey the law. So God had to do what the law could not do. And so because of the weakness of our flesh, God had to send his son, Paul says here, in the likeness of sinful flesh. And it's important to note, okay? He did not say in sinful flesh. Jesus did not come in sinful flesh. Jesus was perfect. Nor did he say in the likeness of flesh, implying that, that Christ came, but he wasn't really human. So Paul is very clear, he says, Christ took on the likeness of sinful flesh because he took on humanity while still remaining perfect without sinning. And this is the only way that Jesus could be our perfect substitute. It was the only way that he could nail our sins to the cross 
And he took on humanity so that he could be our substitute. And he took on, he was perfect so that he could be a flawless sacrifice. And he did this so that the righteous requirement of the law, that record of debt that stood against us, this list of things that we've done wrong or offenses against God was paid in full by Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation. And the Holy Spirit is the one who convinces us of that work. He's the one that has to do a work in our heart. You heard testimony this morning from everyone that there came a moment where the Holy Spirit convinced them that they needed a savior. And yeah, he'd been, you heard in all their stories that he's been, he's been working in their life for a long time. He's been bringing situations in their life to draw their attention to him. But it was the Holy Spirit that convicted them of their sin and their need for a savior and then brought them new life and abundant life in that. Now, why does that, why does the fact that the, Holy Spirit does that work. Why does that give us unshakable confidence? Because it means you don't carry the weight of your own sin or the weight of your salvation. You don't carry it. Christ takes the weight of our sin and his Holy Spirit the weight of our salvation. Meaning you aren't, you're not walking through life trying to hold this gift together that God has given to you. Christ and his spirit hold it together for you. That should give you great confidence because you're, you're free. You can straighten your back and walk with confidence because Christ and his spirit hold everything. In student ministry, we often have conversations with young women, young men and women who are are struggling to know if they're actually saved because they're, they're struggling with sin, just like, like Paul did in chapter seven. And we often have these conversations and I always take them to Ephesians one and I, I hope this is an encouragement for some of you. Ephesians one says this in verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of your inheritance, of your place with Jesus Christ. He has secured salvation in our place in glory. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and believe in his salvation work on the cross, you are saved. You did nothing to earn it. Christ did. And you do nothing to hold it. The Holy Spirit does. And so then that means there isn't anything you can do to lose your salvation. If you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are free. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's good news in this as well. Because we don't have to work to earn our salvation, but God does ask us to walk, us, walk it out, right? In Ephesians, he talks about the, the, that he's prepared good works in advance for us to do. And he asks us to walk in the spirit, but there's good news here as well. Not only does the Holy Spirit set us free from sin's power, he also empowers us to live this new life. He also shows us how to do it. And Paul goes on next to describe our new life in and by the spirit. New life in and by. And there's a reason we're using both words, okay? We, our new life is in the spirit, and it's also 
by the Spirit. And Paul uses both of these phrases here in Romans chapter 8, and I think that's significant. He uses in the Spirit in verse 9 to communicate a relational aspect of our new life, meaning we're, we're in the Spirit. We're in relationship with Jesus Christ and with the Spirit of God, meaning that there's, there's a bond there. We're in the Spirit. But he also uses by the Spirit in verses 13 and 14 to communicate this, this functional aspect of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives because the only way we stay in the Spirit is by the power of the Spirit. You get that? So we're supposed to walk in the Spirit. We're supposed to walk in obedience to Jesus, but we do it by the power of the Spirit. And if you're, if you're thinking about this and you're understanding this, that it takes all the pressure in the world off of you. Christ has done the work. That's why when we see people so burdened by the past, their sin, and they're, they're saved, it breaks our hearts because there's, there is no condemnation there. And I'll be honest, sometimes in churches, I don't... I think First Baptist does a wonderful job of this, but sometimes there are churches that have communicated, yeah, well, we, we still condemn you for the sins of your past. And how dare us condemn someone when Christ says there is no condemnation for that person and I've taken their sin. You don't get to judge them. I've already judged my son on their behalf and their salvation rests in me. And so we walk in and by the Spirit. And we're not gonna take a ton of time to flesh all this out, but it's helpful for us to understand some of the things that the Holy Spirit does on our behalf, okay? We see that the Spirit changes the way we think or what we focus on and find important in verse five. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And here's what this means. When Christ changes your heart, he also changes your mind. And he will continue to do that as you study his, his word. We'll be transformed by the renewing of our mind, Paul says in Romans chapter 12. So what you think about, what you find important, your passions in life, they all change. And so we talk a lot in student ministries because I'm sure you have heard that students like to have like romantic relationships. I don't, I don't know why. It's not like it's one of God's greatest gifts or whatever, but they don't quite understand them, right? And so they're like, sometimes they're kind of desperate and they'll just, they'll date the first person that breathes or talks to them, okay? And we, we have to commute, communicate this idea that is in scripture that we're not supposed to be unequally yoked. And what that means is you, you can't, you're not supposed to have a believer in relationship or marrying an unbeliever. And the reason why is because their entire mindset is different. The most important thing in a believer's life is not the most important thing in an unbeliever's life. And so you can imagine if you get into a relationship where your primary focus in all of life is completely different than, different than yours, there's gonna be some conflict, right? Because Christ changes our minds he changes what we think about. He changes what we find important. And I'm not saying there's not a battle there sometimes. Sometimes we raise things to a level of importance that we shouldn't. But the Holy Spirit does a work in our life to show us that the priorities that this world has are not to be those of the believers in Jesus Christ. In fact, Christ is supposed to be 
the priority. And the Holy Spirit does the work of changing our minds. We also see that the Spirit gives us a new sense of life. This is in verse 11. It says, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So in some ways, when we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of Christ, we experience something of Jesus' outlook on life, okay? We, we think Jesus, when he lived on earth, he wasn't just a good example, but he was a good example. And so when the Spirit, his Spirit indwells us, we take on some of those things. We take on his kindness. We're supposed to be kind. We're supposed to be gentle as Jesus was. We take on his love for other people. Elsewhere in scripture, in Galatians specifically, this is called the fruit of the spirit. What the spirit produces in us is a life that looks a lot like Jesus. And we don't do it perfectly, but as time goes on, as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ, we grow in our relationship with God our Father, the Holy Spirit molds us and, and shapes us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our life. Paul also says that the Spirit gives us new responsibility. Verse 12 and 13 says this, so then brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now let me make this clear, we don't work to be saved, but we are called to work because we are saved. And so one of the works that we're called to do is talked about here in verses 12 and 13 is that when you're saved, you're supposed to put to death sin, get violent with sin. And, and the Holy Spirit helps us do that. He gives us a new priority. He gives us a new responsibility that whenever sin creeps up in our lives, we're supposed to end it. Not let it sit around, not let it fester, not let it rob our minds or in our hearts of joy, but put an end to it. That's one of our responsibilities. We no longer live according to the flesh. We live according to the spirit. It changes our direction. It changes our responsibility. And the Holy Spirit is the one who does that work in us. That's why Paul pleads with us, walk by the spirit, not just in step with him, but in the power of of the Spirit. And just because we have access to the victorious life of Christ, it doesn't mean we're going to do it automatically, okay? I don't, I don't know about you, but my salvation experience, I, was, I believe I was, I was eight years old when I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It wasn't like a, a lightning bolt thing where I was, I don't ever want to sin again. Some of you may have experiences like that. God can, God can work however he wants to work. But for most of us, it's a process called sanctification where God is convincing us over and over again that his way is the right way. It's kind of like um, you have kids that are distracted by shiny things. Like you're walking through the store and they're like, don't come back, come back over here, come back over here. But, but, but. Nope, come back over here, we, we, we're going this direction, and that's how Christ works in us. It's a process by which he shows us the way, but he gives us new responsibilities. He says, you're to walk by the Spirit, 
not according to the flesh. And guess what? How do you, how do you know what is the way of the Spirit? You might have to crack this open every once in a while. Not just every once in a while, like every day. If this is the new direction, if this is the new way of life, if this is the new passion, the, the new thrust of who we are, we, we better spend some time evaluating what it really is. And I know that's, that's, it's sad, but that's kind of a foreign concept for us because sometimes we, we compartmentalize our faith and our journey with God on Sunday mornings, right? And maybe a, maybe a weeknight life group or maybe we're, we're serving in a spot. But for a lot of us, we can go an entire week until we pick this up for Sunday morning to bring it to church with us and not even have having read. A part of walking by the Spirit is looking into the word of God and seeing what the Spirit's direction actually is. Yes, he's gonna help us understand it. Yes, he's going to help you apply it to your life. He's given you responsibilities to walk by the Spirit, not according to the flesh. Finally, Paul reveals in verses 14 through 17 that we also have a new identity. We have a new identity, and this is really good news. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We're not beggars anymore. We're royalty. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Through the Spirit, we are children of God. We are fellow heirs with Christ, meaning that as a child of God, you have access to all the resources that your father has. Do we understand that? I understand that fatherhood has been broken and diminished all over this country and all over this world. You know why? Because fatherhood is so important to the Christian faith. Satan knows it. He knows that in order for us to grasp our new identity, we have to understand that we're children of the Father. We're joint heirs with Christ, meaning that, that we're sons and daughters of the King. And he's done his best, Satan has done his best to ruin our image of fathers, to ruin our, in order to ruin our image of God the Father. But the truth is we have a good father, a loving father, a perfect father, an all-powerful father who has adopted us and loves us and has called us into a relationship with him. And he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. You're mine. And your joint heirs with Jesus Christ, meaning you, every resource that I have, everything that I have, you have access to. We're children of God. We have a new identity. We're no longer enemies. We're no longer slaves. We're children and we're friends and we're fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. And I know that this section is like drinking from a fire hose. Paul is throwing a ton of stuff at you. And sometimes it gets, when we start talking about the Holy Spirit, we get really confused. And certainly the Bible has much more to say about how the Holy Spirit works in us. But for the sake of our message today in this series in general, 
I want you to understand that we can be unshaken because even though we aren't where we're supposed to be or maybe where we even want to be, by God's grace and the Spirit's work, we aren't where we used to be. He's working in us. He's creating in us a new creation, a new heart. He's continuing to sanctify, to grow, to build, to change us into the likeness of Jesus, the Son. And that should give us great confidence. He's not done with me yet. He's not done with you yet. There is no condemnation. We are no longer under the power or penalty of sin. The Holy Spirit liberates us. We don't hold our salvation. He does. And the Holy Spirit changes us. We haven't arrived yet, but God's work continues in us. He's not finished with us. And that should help us walk by confidence, knowing that I know I'm not, supposed, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I know I'm not like Jesus yet. But by God's grace, I'm, I'm not who I used to be. I'm not an enemy anymore. I'm a friend. I'm a child of God. And my record of debt has been nailed to the cross. We can stand unshaken when we embrace the freedom we have in Christ through the Spirit. And I love how Paul sums it up. We already read it, but look at, at it again with me in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And when we face difficulty, and we will, and you probably have and probably will again, we don't need to be anxious or fall back into fear and worry about how big our problems are. We simply need to remind ourselves of how great our Father is, how great a Savior we have, how great a work he started and will complete in each one of us. I would be amiss today if I didn't point out one final thing, and this goes back all the way to verse one that we talked about. It says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means that for those who are not in Christ Jesus, there remains com condemnation for your sin. You are separated from Jesus Christ. And the record of debt still stands against you with its legal demands. And that debt has to be paid. But there's good news. Jesus paid that price. And all you need to do is believe and accept that free gift of salvation and you will be in Christ. And today you can walk in the confidence that Christ offers because there is no condemnation. And if you don't know Jesus as your savior, I would love nothing more than to be able to walk you through that and show you how you can have unshaken confidence and faith in Jesus Christ. And so if that's you and you wanna know how, how you can know Jesus and you can start your life with him and how you can live without condemnation in your life, come put your hand in mine after we pray or put your hand in one of our, our prayer team members up here and we would love to show you how you can start your new journey with Jesus Christ today. Let's pray. Father God, what an unbelievable thing to know that we don't stand condemned before you because of your son, Jesus. I don't have to do another moment's work to earn my salvation because your son Jesus has already done it perfectly. 
And I stand here because I have placed faith in him. I stand here now as a child of, of God, as a co-heir with, with Jesus, the son. And God, I want that so badly for all those people here. Not, not just salvation, certainly I want that, but the, the understanding and the confidence and walking through life knowing that God is for us. He's for us so much that he gave his son to die on my behalf and he nailed my record of debt to the cross with him. And so God, give us that confidence. And when we don't believe, help our unbelief. And when we struggle to follow you by faith, when we struggle to know who you are and know what to do next, help us to walk by the Spirit. Help us to look into your word to see what it says and guide us today. God, give us a great day celebrating uh, what you've done in our lives, and we'll give you the glory for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.